and we're recording cool. on we're recording on Zoom and we're live on Facebook. And I want to thank everybody for uh, for joining in today. Been looking forward to this. Inter so, yep, I'm just going to I'm going to spill the beans right now, Michael. <laughs> I feel so guilty in a way because I really tried to follow bands that I heard were really good or creative, innovative, all this stuff. I had not heard of Happy the Man. Well, Giovanni Pagano told me about you. He told me about the band. Giovanni is watching on Zoom. Thank you, my friend. We have other kind of other connections too, which I'll tell you in a minute. It has to oh. do with eyes. But anyways, thank you for turning me on to this because I love the music and uh, Michael's drumming and everything. So now I'm an official Happy the Man fan. I've been listening ever since the first time I listened weeks ago. And so my guest today is the original drummer and percussionist with the band Happy the Man, my special guest, Mr. Michael Beck. Welcome. Thanks, Carl. Perfect, How you man. doing? I'm good. I'm good. Just getting good. older. <laughs> <laughs> Did you say older? <laughs> yeah, I said older. <laughs> uh, we're in the same club. Yes, we I are. feel good, you know, feel good, but... Uh, Time's flying by. Wow. I know. So you're, let's just start off present day, just at the moment right now. You're, are you in Indiana? Is that where you're at? I am. I'm in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, ah, yes, we've okay. been here for, gosh, I got to think about that. We've been here for 25 years or so, probably. Okay. Uh, yeah, we lived out in California for a while uh, by Newport Beach came oh, back that's beautiful we've been yeah. here ever since yeah um so yes indianapolis interesting i may be there for a few days in indianapolis in uh may oh cool we'll uh get your coffee that's for sure yeah yeah not that it matters this is about you but i'm gonna just say it anyways so i met a when i recorded my one and only solo cd two years ago um I through my friend Jimmy Haslip, who's a bass player who yeah. plays on it and also produces it. And I've known him for years. He introduced me to a, a friend in Indianapolis. His name is Scott Hoke. Scott is the voice you hear on the Meekum Auto Auction television show. And I'm a car junkie. Yeah. And I got this mic. I actually bought this mic from Scott. So Scott and I were talking yesterday. He says the Indie Meekum show is coming up in May. And I think I'm probably just going to go. Cool. Something yeah, cool. different, right? So we'll hang yeah. out. Well, Michael, I hardly I wrote notes down, but I don't usually follow them well. Um, can you just talk a little bit about maybe we can go through chronologically um, some of you know how happy the band formed? I read some about it, um, but also your, your approach to the music and happy the man and your approach to drumming, which. It was so cool. So I'll just say what I feel because it's it's a feeling when I listen to the music. I feel a lot of emotions. There's almost like an orchestral aspect. And especially when you take the percussion that you did, not just drums, but the drum set, but percussion, you built scaffolding for the percussion. And looking at, uh, I actually found um, some old videos that I was watching. Oh, you did? On you yeah, on YouTube. And I'm watching right. and I said, man, you got to move. You got to be able to get up and move to do this stuff. So movement, I was reading that movement, dance almost became a part of 
you're performing because you had to be able to move to get everything right physically Correct. reach everything yeah. but you know the sounds that they were using that the band used the compositions they actually they it's not real often i feel emotions when i listen to music especially if it's others something other than excitement um but i feel emotions a lot of different type of emotions and i you know it makes me feel good so thank you for that you could not ask for any more out of a listener than that if mm -hmm. as an artist and musician or any band for that say if you can create the people listening to you to feel emotions from it i mean that's what it's all about anyway as far as i'm concerned yeah um, and yes i mean for me um that that was everything i mean to be able to I, I'm a very emotional player, um, more than I am technical. And uh, for me, it's all about the emotion. Uh, mm -hmm. It was also about being orchestrated, like you brought up earlier, sure. which is kind of where I got my setup from. It was sort of like being in an orchestra pit. Um, so yeah, I mean, I started out as a drummer on a drum kit and uh, was a good drummer, but I found it kind of uh, limiting. Um, I could... I was never going to be a Steve Gadd or this flashy, incredible chopped guy that could do every lick in the world. Mm -hmm. So I began experimenting more with sounds, you know, and I really got attracted to percussion and percussion to me became anything from clicking two rocks together to a tambourine, to the most expensive timpani you could buy to a feather in the air. I mean, mm -hmm. it just was anything that created that emotional orchestrated sound as a percussionist in a orchestra would do. Commonly in a big orchestra, you find four or five or six percussionists, but I myself sort of took on and developed uh, the role of being the one guy with a huge setup with scaffolding and timpani and chimes and log drums and mm -hmm. shells and everything you can imagine from kids' toys to spoons and, and I could just hear in my head sounds that would fit better than what sometimes a drum kit would do. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, a drum kit can do a lot and is terribly needed in lots of parts. But then there's sections where you don't want to put just a hi-hat going digga 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 ding, keeping time. There's so many other sounds and emotions that you can put there that something else would give. So the thing that was cool for me was in hearing those in my head or searching those out uh, and then experimenting with the different sections that we would have in the tunes that the other three guys had written. Uh, and they were phenomenal as it was anyway. I mean, they were already emotion driven, you know, and full of that kind of a thing. So it made it easy for me to be able to just develop and hear that. Uh, so hence, yeah, I had a huge kit that, um, it had two rooms. There was a front room. There was a back room. I forget how big it was. It must have been 15 by 20 feet, you know, with scaffolding. And yeah, that's and, cool. Yeah. And I mean, my <laughs> front chair, uh, there was a drum kit. And then, of course, there was all kinds of stuff around that from different symbols to whatever I needed in there. Mm -hmm. When I would turn to my left, there was a whole nother rigging of a small 18 inch bass drum with xylophones and cowbells and wood blocks and a whole tray of whistles and kids toys and twirl wheels and 
then I'd have to get up to go to the back room uh, that was separated by these Polynesian round seashells that I had that were compressed. Oh, it wow. gave this beautiful tone. They were like, you know, eight feet high and about, you know, four feet wide, the draped. And in the back room, there was chimes, there was timpani, there was tuned dishes, there was log drums, there was uh, bells from um, high school fire alarms, there was a CO2 canister, there was mm -hmm. just on and on and on. So um, I had an orchestra pit to me that I could score whatever I wanted to score, which also is a whole nother topic of how the band operated and worked. Everybody had the freedom to do that. That's great. Uh, and, yeah. and I lived and breathed it. I mean, it was my home. <laughs> it was yeah. actually my home. Yeah. And you're correct. I had to move around and from one room to the other, and I was up and down. So I had to figure out what to wear to be comfortable in doing that. I couldn't wear shirts like this. You'd get mm -hmm. caught up and stuff. So I ended up taking dancing tights, which fit very tight, let me move like a dancer would. And then things started happening because I'm moving and having to do this and picking up mallets. I mean, you know, so it turned into a whole thing, which was what I loved. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. So it sounds like you were probably experimenting a lot with items that you would find and just see what kind of sound they would make, right? Two 100. items together or tap them or knock 100. them on something. 100%. I mean, most of my, um, weeks were consumed with going to antique stores, going to any shop, uh, canisters behind a film company, uh, anything I could find that made a sound, a noise mm -hmm. I was into. And then you would have to develop how are you going to hang or put this in your kit, which made the kit bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. Uh, then there were issues of, well, how do you cart this on the road? How do you case these things? Who's going to set this up? You know, so there's a whole, a whole thing that became involved. And I had an incredible road crew we did. And that Kenny, mm -hmm. Kenny, my road crew guy was great and had it down to a science. And, you know, I'm jumping around, but it was, it was just really, it was my home. Yeah, it was my home. No, that's, that's, I, I think um, there are a lot of things I like about that. Just, the idea that you would be creative and, uh, you know, sonic <laughs> elements, right? You know, I I've saw, I remember um, a friend of mine, this is like 40 years ago, percussionist, uh, Emma Dean Rivera. He was, uh, now he's, I mean, he's big. He's playing with, you know, um, uh, man, I have COVID brain. I, seriously, I'm, I can focus on you and me, but I can't think of anything else and remember no, wait, that much. I'll think of her name, uh, Mary J. Blige and some others, you know, so he's, he made, well, but bottom line, when he was here, we went to college together. He developed a, a key tree. So it was keys. Yeah. He had like fish line because it was durable, you know, uh, fish yeah. line holding strings and he would just move the thing that he made for the key tree. And what a beautiful sound. So of course, what did I do? I started saving keys for years and I never did anything with them, but, uh, but I, I love that idea. I remember even seeing the show Stomp like 20 years ago. Yeah. And I'm not much of a show guy. But I have to tell you, they use some pretty cool stuff there as percussion instruments, like even a, inside of a paper towel roller, a roll of paper towels, the cardboard, that makes a sound. <laughs> so It doesn't matter. To me, it's completely wide open. Yeah. It's just there's the practicalities part of it have 
when you're in a band like that and how often you're playing out and traveling or whatever you're mm-hmm. doing or going just to, to a, a show, yeah. how you're going to cut that stuff. So, and then I had to have backups to everything. So a lot of the kids' toys I would have, like tubes that you would spin, uh, old antique one whistles that I had, mm-hmm. uh, things like that wear out or they get lost or they might get stolen. So you had to have a double for all that because once you scored into a piece, it's there. So yeah. there, there's all kinds of stuff that came with it, you know, that is not as easy as just tearing down a drum kit and setting up a six piece kit and there you're ready to go. This was yeah. enormous amount. Oh, of that it. was an undertaking, right? What you had it, was like, it was. And, so you had, uh, really, it's kind of like you had to engineer your, or, or plan out your space and placement and we did not only for setting up, but for packing up and getting in a vehicle and going out somewhere, I'm sure. Yeah. And the other guys on stage, you know, we were all tucked in together and, yeah. and Kit and uh, Frank had, you know, a large keyboard set up, the old Fender Rhodes and the Hammond yeah. B3 and string ensemble. Oh. And many, I mean, so they yeah. themselves a pretty good size setup and everybody had their own custom particular instruments. And yeah, it was wonderful. It was really cool. That's great, man. So, you know, when I listen to, um, and I'm real bad with names, but one of the first songs on one of the CDs, uh, but this, this, I could say this about dozens of songs is just, it's like an introduction to the rest of the CD because the way the music on the CDs was a, um, order the order uh, i really appreciate how they put it together i don't know who whose idea if it was if the band or a producer or whatever but the flow of things becomes like a complete body of work with smaller bodies of work in the middle and some of the intros are just a beautiful setup for the rest of the albums and they yeah. already make me like feel emotions when i'm listening to them so i can't wait for the rest and then it comes and then i just go through this you know what it is? It's a journey. The music takes you on a trip. And that doesn't happen that often with me. Oh, that's cool. But that's when cool. it happens, I really appreciate it. Well, you know, you Happy the Man, the original members, the five of us, it, it was the chemistry. I mean, mm-hmm. you've played in bands. You know what it's yeah. like. And sometimes you have the right chemistry. Sometimes you don't. Um, and we just happen to have the perfect chemistry with everybody that did what they did with the freedom from everyone to let everyone else do exactly what came from them. So if you have that freedom in a band, there's no one person that is telling you what to play or completely stands out and everyone's equal in what they're delivering. And in their thinking of what they want the product to be and able to experiment with that product to -hmm. create the end result, you're going to get an incredible thing. Um, we were all great friends. Um, all we did was rehearse every night until, you know, two in the morning. And we experimented with everything you could imagine musically. And it, yeah, it was just, it was an incredible, wonderful time that I wouldn't trade for anything, you know. What a great um, experience. Yeah, oh, totally. 100%. And the word emotion is perfect because all of us felt the same thing. We were all completely moved by what we were playing and worked at it until we developed right where we wanted it to be. So yeah. it's funny because the amount of hours and the intensity of our rehearsals and uh, to get to that point really makes you as a musician. I mean, so many guys anymore, it's, 
it's pickup gigs. It's well, God, how long's the gig? What's it pay? What do I really bring that? Uh, yeah. You know, it, do I have to rehearse? Oh God, really? You know, am I going to be paid for that? In those days, it was more of a, we're putting this thing together, man. And God, we love King Crimson and Genesis and yes. And mm-hmm. Hatfield and North and weather report. And, you know, that God, let's do this. You know, Let, you just work your butts off enjoying every moment of it, you know, to get there to that. And if you can keep that unit together, um, musically and personality wise and all that, then you're, yeah, you know, then you get your reactions sure. back to your crowd and the feedback and it just builds. Uh, then if you can keep the unit together business wise, and that's a whole nother subject, you know? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we did, we, it worked. Yeah. So, uh, a uh, good friend of mine is watching right now, Scott, Dr. Gross, who's also not only a very good friend, but he's my dentist. Oh, cool. He says, happy the man, the best of the best. Scott, why didn't you tell me about these guys? Yeah, see, we're too <laughs> underground. Yeah. No, it's so cool, though, man. I, I just, I, I go back to this again. I say when we were talking, when I was talking with Dennis Chambers, and then you were on and you said, had he heard of them? And I asked, he's like, oh, yeah. And then he went on and talked about it. I th- he was talking about maybe he ran into the guitar player somewhere in the past couple of years. Uh, he just, and I'm not exactly sure what that was, but, and yeah. I thought I'd heard too. That's why I thought I would ask him to see, because I, there's, there's a lot of artists like that, that over the years, Neil Peart uh, is another one. And oh, wow. That's cool. I knew they knew about, about us. And I never got to meet Neil, Neil Peart. I, uh, worked at a, the percussion center in Fort Wayne, Indiana years ago. It was a really mm-hmm. beautiful percussion shop. Neil Graham owned it, who passed away here a while back and actually invented the um, the fiber cases, the hard shell, you know, once oh. he had a company yeah. of sold Gator or whoever. But he used sure. to do all of Neil Pert's equipment for Neil. Oh. And when I worked there for a short stint, um, I would actually do stuff for Neil Pert with the temple blocks and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though then happy the man happened and Neil ended up kind of endorsing me, you know, and going with that. But so there's a lot of, I come across that over the years of different musicians that are well-known like that, that really like the band or, you know, that it's just this underground kind of thing, you know, um, it's, it, whatever yeah scott yeah. scott says knee bitten nymphs in limbo is his favorite song of all time cool <laughs> that's cool man now, i've got to go i heard that recently i'm gonna go back and listen to it um so i'm curious i have a million questions by the way if anyone has questions just type them in the comments on facebook or here in the chat on zoom uh love the space that he creates interacting with other bandmates uh, Giovanni says Scott says happy the man was the best American prog rock group that no one ever heard of see there you go there you go yeah, yeah. Um, so how how did you go about let's say writing were, were, were you involved in any of the composing or um, you were, were you co-writing with people or were they writing together how did the compositions come about player frank keys and saxophone and kit keyboards recorders flute they were the primary writers mm-hmm. rick kennel on bass and i on my percussion and drums um 
did not write for the band. I think Rick might have had a hand in one of them, uh, Broken Waves, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, it didn't matter. I mean, those guys are so gifted in their writing abilities. And for them, they would write individually uh, tunes they would come up with, but then more likely collectively get together two of them or the three of them, structure kind of where that tune might be going at the same time, bring it in to Rick and I. And then like I talked before, all of us had the complete freedom to just do whatever we heard and felt it should be there. And I don't ever remember a problem with that, with somebody going, nah, man, that sucks. Or no, don't put that there. Or, Come on, what are you doing? Or, or anything that was negative. It was completely the freedom to just create your part. So when you had the three of them writing bringing it in, the rest of us inputting, we're basically writing our parts to what someone else, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, so it became a very totally. collective. Yeah. And then as a musician in a band, when you do that, you have a complete pride of your part of that song because your whole part is an original add-on to what is brought to you, we're bringing to them what they brought to us. Everyone's bringing in, tightening down this machine, little product thing. And what turns out is everybody presenting this, this cool thing. So never ever was somebody going, no, play that. This is what I want. It was, what are you going to do? You know, what are, what are you coming up with? What fits there? Oh, that sounds great. Or there might be a little bendage where can you turn that around instead of that on there and see what happens. But Everybody was just completely open to whatever suggestion would go down. Uh, it, you couldn't ask for any could not ask for any more being in a band like that. Yeah, that's really great. I mean, that that is a really special, uh, let's say, um, situation to be able to it do is. that and have that kind of chemistry and trust and faith and just everything. It's great. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, like when because you, you guys did some traveling, you were on the road and this and that. So. You know, people knew of you, they'd have your albums, they'd come out, they'd see you. What were the live shows like? Um, and when I mean, when I say if I ask this the best way, um, if you take a composition, you know, the compositions you recorded a certain way on the live shows, how much variation would you have in those? Like maybe extending them or improv, improv, Anything like that? How much did it vary from the original recording? Not much. Mm -hmm. um, that's why we were sort of like an orchestra. Mm -hmm. We, everybody had a worked out part, whether it was a melody or a solo section. Um, and it stayed where it was. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah, there was some improv that could happen on solos. It seems to me, though, that most of the solo sections were already kind of a worked out kind of thing where you knew kind of what was going to happen there because it was more of a melody situation. Yeah. Kit and Stanley and Frank, with the instruments that they used from flutes to recorders, to saxophone to the keyboards, uh, did a lot of duo and trio melodies and things together. You mm -hmm. probably heard that on the I album. Did. I did. Uh, masterfully just together, like, you know, in sync. So yeah. a lot of that happened, whereas a lot of bands might take someone just going off into a, who know, you know, solo situation. This was more incredible melodic melodies, which brings out the emotion I think you're talking about and the tightness of yeah. what we did. 
uh, it made us very different from other bands that were bands like Soft Machine and hundreds of others, you know, would do a typical jazz, you got the head, you know, then you break into the solo sections and you're, you know, we were more just movements, you know, of what happened. And one, and the thing I liked about Happy The Man the most, we were very fluid. Mm -hmm. uh, so many progressive bands would do, well, we're gonna do three, four now, now we're gonna go into seven, eight, back to four, four, one measure of, uh, you know, three, you know, it would, you could feel that you're jumping from time, you know, we were just, everything was so fluid. You didn't even know you were changing time signatures, you know, um, and that's a real art to be able to do that. And, you know. I actually noticed that in my listening. Yeah, good, good, I'm glad. Because I'm very, very familiar with, played a lot of, and very well understand odd time signatures yeah. of all kinds. And what you say is so, so true about being able to create it in a flow where it doesn't feel herky-jerky. Yeah. That's, exactly. that's a beautiful thing. Exactly. Yeah. Then, you have, then you have, yeah, it just flows. I think and, it gives more of a, a, that can add to that emotion too, because herky-jerky doesn't make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm not cutting herky-jerky because there are times where that's a cool thing. I sure. mean, I'm going yeah. here, I'm going there, we're coming over here. And it's like, holy crap, how'd they do that? That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But at that point, you can lose some of that really nice emotional stuff you're talking mm -hmm. about because you're you're going with all that stuff. Like, oh my God, look at the chops on that. But this was more like, God, geez, really? Whoa, you know? And it hit these lush settings. Well, a lot of those lush dropouts or settings that the band would fall into, I'm not going to blow a drum kit through there because your drum kit's driving it, you know, you're driving sections. And most drummers, which I'm fine with, on a lush section would probably come down to cymbals, the bells, work the hi-hat, keep a little rhythm, maybe a slight floor tom or dip into brushes. But then that's really all you can do in that section, unless you're just going to drop out and let the section be the section. But I would hear uh, leaves blowing, or I would hear uh, little crumblings of like a fire that was happening, or I would hear neat little bells in the back that would, you know, and in my head, I would think, God, right, when that drops, I'm going to really need mallets on a really nice cymbal that's going to kind of lush with that, with a sizzle cymbal that's going to give me that sizzle, and then I'm going to bring in a box of, um, of maybe sandpaper with little rocks in it and kind of get a you know, kind of sound, and that's going yeah. to bring the next section, which maybe, um, you know, something else is going to lead to that. So that's kind of how my head works. And it's always been that way throughout the years. Even now, I'm a hybrid drummer, percussionist, more than I am a drummer, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I, well, even in Ken Scott's book, did you, did you see Ken Scott's book he put out? No. Diggy uh, Stardust, uh, Ken was our producer. Oh, uh, no, no. Yeah. I've, you know, I've heard it. I've seen oh, it. Oh, you would love it. I have seen it, but no, I don't it's, have that. He goes through, you know, Ken did, you know, Beatles and Mahavishnu and Dixie yeah. Dread. Um, he has, there's a section about Happy the Man in there uh, in his book. Okay. And I even pointed out a little thing with, with me in there. He says, Michael, I think, was more of a percussionist than he really was a drummer. He thought more that way. And I thought, mm -hmm. well, Jesus, you're right, Ken. <laughs> you know, I it took me a while to realize that, yeah, I guess I'm not really a drummer. I'm really more of a hybrid, you know, because everything I do these days, 
is built around a cajon drum and everything is played with my hands or I'll flip or I'll flip to a drum kit, but I'm still doing the same thing I've done for years with a tin canister up to anything that it takes to get the sound for who I'm working with. You know, I know I'm getting off the beaten track here, but no, not at all. But it's, it's, uh, we know. So when you go back and you talk about your limitations with a drum set, let's say for the Sonic that you want to provide, well, what you do, that's half the reason there, there was so much beautiful flow in the band, in my humble opinion, because, uh, and just off track for one second, like you said, herky jerky. Yes, there is a time and place for everything because that, oh, yeah. that can add a different dynamic, different energy for maybe a song or a part of a song. But the flow, to me, the flow that uh, I hear when I listen to you, when I listen to Happy the Man, you take those sounds, the way you're thinking of, you know, conceptually, and then finding, you know, those seashells or that sizzle symbol with the mallets you find, there, you find that, that helps to propel the flow. It's a text. It's actually even not even just the sound. It's a texture of sound, right? And, yeah. yeah. And it's also dynamics. And what most fans don't have is dynamics. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have from the loudest to the softest and everything in between, and utilize that in a piece, you're not going to have the emotion that you heard and you're searching for. Uh, you'll get emotion, but it might just be, you know, just what it's going to be. But, but to me, the dynamics, and you ask about us playing live earlier, uh, what we were so amazing at was the dynamics and be able to do exactly what was on that CD and the others mm-hmm. live, make it sound like it was. And, uh, New York Dream Suite, one of the tunes on the CD, uh, fades out on there. You may not remember the one I'm talking, but it's an I actual. But... It's a fade, and we did that fade out live to where it was one of the most amazing fade outs. Oh, cool! That we did that, and I mean, it just everyone with volume pedals or whatever everyone was using, that tune just drifts on this thing that repeats, and we just took it to nothing, and oh. I timpani at that my part was a timpani part mm-hmm. and i which is easy to fade out on to some extent yeah. so we took it down and you could come down to hear a pin drop and it was over and that's the kind of presentation that we wow. would do you know oh yeah it was, it was beautiful um so don't see that that often you know i mean yeah no no i don't think i ever faded out on anything live that's really so you know it sounds like a lot of the uh um improv if you will was right up front in the composition so yeah or if you i don't mean the creativity became that was up front you had the freedom to do what you wanted to do you created a part around the piece probably everybody did right and then that became the entity and what people would expect and you would go and you would play that live but the creative part i i can see um Sometimes I don't really state things so eloquently or succinctly, but, you know, like you say, you got jazz, A, A, B, A, or whatever it is, you know, play the, the head and then, you know, jam out with some stuff, trade fours, whatever. No, no offense to that. That's fine. But, but you something different every time, maybe during the solos and all that. That's one type of creativity. But when you have a complete composition that is constructed with freedom 
Ah, that's a beautiful thing, man. I don't think I've ever done that. It makes well, me I mean, want. It makes me want to do it. <laughs> it. I mean, yeah. I mean, there were there were movements in most of the tunes that they wrote, and because of the dynamics and the way that we approached it, it made it even more of movements. And because of the what I talked about earlier, the time changes and things that would happen that went really unnoticeable, all that just made it what it was. I probably had more improbability, not ability, but able to do live than the other guys to some extent. Most of their work was probably in their solo sections mm-hmm. or just the beautiful, beautiful way they would could texture things and play the part that was already there mm-hmm. and so masterfully. But compared to the album and me live, I had a lot more percussion I would do because of my setup live than I did on the album. On the album, I did quite a bit, but there were certain things that may not quite fit on the album that I could do live or for the sake of, if you want to call it showmanship, to me, it was just more what was there Mm -hmm. uh, I would do. Um, I would open up a tune with, it's a kid's toy, but it's like a a vacuum hose, I guess you could say. And when you spin it, you get Mm -hmm. this you know, kind of thing. Well, yeah, that's cool. There's a tune where that's not on the album where I would open that up, and this is very visual. You know, spinning this big green tube that's about you know six feet long mm-hmm. with this weird sound, and then I would bring in like a whistle, a bird whistle, and create these little sounds. Come down to a CO2 cartridge, a big old one that would go doing. You know, <laughs> well, you're setting up like this. What? what the hell is going to happen here? You know what I mean? Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. And then the guys would, would come in with the piece at that point. I knew my part was going to be coming where I break into the drum kit or whatever, but I still had the freedom to put whatever else in there I might hear because of that, whether I'm standing up moving or hitting these things, uh, it became very visual. Mm -hmm. So instead of watching just a drummer, play like a drummer plays which can be visual with lots of players there's there's like what is that what's that thing he's got what did he do there where did that come from what is that instrument yeah so it opened up a whole nother visual aspect of a live performance where people are watching me blow up a balloon that you let go and it goes you know and flies off and you know but that yeah. creates a little odd cool moment that's a very visual you know, kind of audio, you know, wow, you know, and those make, those those are building memories, you know, those are, they become part of the tune, yeah, and uh, we had a lot of that, and each guy in his own right had what he did so well like that, Mm -hmm. that I think when you watched Happy Demand, you were like, just going, God, look at him do that, what is he playing there, what, yeah, it, it, absolutely, it it just, it just, yeah, just made a very beautiful show, you know. Um, you know, speaking of using different types of uh, things for sound, I remember, let's say I was living in Chicago for 82 and 83. At 83, I saw a weather report come through with the new band after Jocko and Peter Erskine left. It was Omar Hakim on drums, Victor yeah. Bailey. Yep. So um, as, and I already had the album Domino Theory, or, or maybe it was, no, it might've been the one before that, but it's what it, the song is called where the moon goes. And uh, on the album, you hear this. 
well, that sound was a trash can top. Right on. And he brought it on tour and he used the trash can top because you could only get that sound with that particular trash can top, which he found in Joe Wazzonal's yard when he went to visit him at home or rehearse or whatever. And and Zero said, yeah, yeah, I used it. So that, that was probably after the key tree a couple of years before with my friend Emma Dean, uh, that was my next experience into something non-percussive quote. You wouldn't sell a trash can top in a percussion shop probably, or maybe now you would, but anything can be almost anything oh. seems like it could be a percussion instrument. Oh, can be. Yeah. Unique, unique but- sounds, whether it's hitting it, swirling it. That's so cool. Well, it's funny because in the old days, um, you know how many symbols there are. In the old days, there weren't that many different kinds of symbols yeah, as there are nowadays. True. And I, I had everything different I could find, but um, I used to buy crut symbols. Remember crut? I remember them. Uh, KRUT, they were the cheapest pieces of crap you could find. You could pick them up <laughs> six bucks. And, you know, when I went to a music store, when we went out traveling or wherever where I'd go, I always see the showroom, but I would always ask, do you have a basement? Do you have a, like a attic? Do you have like a downstairs where you get a bunch of crap? And they go, what, what do you mean? I go, can I look? Well, you go down there and you would see, they think it's junk. And I'm finding little xylophones and I'm finding oh, yeah. incredible <laughs> things. But what do you want for that? You know, 10 bucks? Yeah, we don't, you know. Well, that's how I got lots of my stuff. Oh, that's yeah. Searching these weird little spots or antique shops or anything that would carry I bought incredible sleigh bells that they used to use on an Amish, you know, carriage oh, yeah. uh, for 20 bucks. And there, I used them all the time. They're incredible, you know, a leather, yeah. leather thing, you know, and you just can't, that's the sounds that I like, you know, those kind of things. So, well, th- this is a, a good time to uh, just kind of read a comment from Giovanni here. Cause I, Giovanni, I'm totally with you on this, although I haven't done it yet. Cause it's been, you know, two feet of snow up here. But anyways, um, Giovanni says, my friend David and I used to enjoy Happy the Man uh, most when we were experiencing nature. Headphones, of course. Yeah, I I agree. And um, they really painted a great picture that paired so well with the great outdoors. I totally see that. That's cool. I see that. Yeah. Nice. I know when I get out and I'm in the park and I'm running this year or mountain biking, well, I don't usually wear my earbuds then because I don't go too fast, but running. Yeah. I can see myself listening to happy. The man It's the perfect fit for the woods. Yeah. They, they make the woods experience a lot better. <laughs> they wrote beautiful stuff. Um, I think hidden moods is my favorite piece. Well, I have several, but um, that would remind me of a, a nature kind of setting, but. I'll have to check that out. So my friend Scott said he waited 20 years to see Happy the Man. Um, I don't think you probably were with them, though. This was November 13th, 04, or November 4th of 2013. I'm not sure which. New York Prague House, Matuchin, New Jersey. Frog Cafe. Interesting. Yeah. But Scott's turned me on to some uh prog rock that i didn't know about but not happy the man <laughs> hey i know now and that's the important thing it's, you know what it is it's like i was talking with my son the other day 
this this was like the the oxygen I needed because I'll get bored with stuff or, you know, I listen to it a lot, a lot, a lot. And then it's time to put it away. I might come back to it after a few months or sometimes years and it's all fresh again. Yeah. So when when uh, Giovanni told me and then I went right in and started searching, I'm like, OK, this is new oxygen. This is fresh air. God, I love it when that happens. Which is funny because it's it's old stuff too. At this point, sure. it goes way back. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. It's it's what stood the test of time, I guess, for you know, this many well, I, years. You know, yeah, I, I see it as uh, my word for that is it stands as it's timeless. There is no expiration date on it. It's always, it's, you know, some things are so identifiable. You know, you might be able to take some of the sounds and identify it with, oh, that's 70s or 80s or whatever, but um compositionally and even sonically it's still it still stands well yeah. and kit our keyboard guy was just a, a amazing player he um he would rework the arp string ensemble and the hammond organ and you know get his own sounds out of it that really didn't exist at that time and they were just really geniuses at, at bringing out sounds that people that have stood the test of time basically you know what i mean mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. So it doesn't sound dated like when you hear old Minnie Moog and it's going, woo, woo, you know, old Emerson Lake and Palmer, you know, Lucky Man or something. This guy's like, woo, yeah. woo, you know, that's kind those of were date. monophonic too. You can't put two, play two one, two notes no, at once on one of those. Pretty and interesting. The blended their instruments together when they would double up or triple up, yeah. led to a whole new kind of sound, you know, with those instruments doubled up. So it there did. was a lot that contributed to to that. Well. I have a couple of questions. So um, you, in the beginning, before we started, you mentioned I could be free to ask whatever I want. Oh, right? yeah. So I will. <laughs> this is scary. I, got I just I just uh, what, what one thing that impressed me a lot is. I read somewhere that at some point, Peter Gabriel, like, came over to one of your houses or rehearsals and was hanging out. And just that alone, to me, is so cool because I've always loved Peter Gabriel. Thank and you. Um, now, the reason I wasn't sure if it's cool to ask is I don't know how that outcome was, but what was that experience like? That was an incredible experience. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a few things that would have really changed our careers, our individually or collectively. Um, Peter was definitely one. Um, and you get a little bit, you get different stories. I think it's who in the bank remember exactly what happened and how it went down. My recollection is... Um, Peter had just left Genesis and wanted to do his own thing and was going to do what would have been his first solo album way back um, with tunes like Here Comes the Flood and what Slow Burn and stuff like that. Um, he caught drift of us through somebody. Uh, one of the other guys may know more about that than I. And uh, at that time was searching out a band that he wanted to back him to do the CD and we became one of those choices. And uh, so he flew over to Washington, D.C. I remember picking him up at the airport and driving him in, which was pretty cool in itself because we were fans of Peter, too. Yeah. yeah. We've been to Genesis for a long time. And all of a sudden, have, you know, Peter going, hey, you know. So uh, he came in. I think we spent about, I forget, three days, it seems like, somewhere in there with him. Wow. I went swimming, hung out at our manager's uh, little log cabin he had, got to know him that way. 
but then we also rehearsed in a rehearsal room, uh, working up some of that CD, you know, and he, I think he wanted to see how it would fall for him. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember him, you know, walking through my drum kit going, guys, this is, you know, really nice. And, and I remember me doing my orchestral type of thing. And I remember in a couple of times him pulling me over and going, Michael, you know, this is beautiful. He says, but on this particular tune, let me play what Phil did. Phil did a little thing for me, you know, and he, it was just kind of a straight rocking thing. He said, I'm thinking more of this. Like, okay. So we, we all worked on things like that with him. And I can remember sitting around a little Fender Rhodes piano, all of us above him while he's sitting there playing, here comes the flood, you know, yeah. and two, yeah, we're all just like going, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so long story short, uh, yes, we did spend a few days with him, getting to know him well and working on his material. Uh, as I remember, I believe we were offered the position of all the other bands, but at the same time, we were not yet signed to Arista uh, mm. from Clive Davis, who signed us, but we're very close. And so close, I can't remember the timing, but I think we had been offered that at the same time. And... Peter wanted us kind of exclusive. So we were hoping to be able to do both, but we chose to stay with the rest of records, signing Happy the Man as we were, because we worked so long and so hard to get that. Yeah, really. And that well, was that, that was actually my next question is the Arista was, experience with Clive. Yeah. yeah. Well, we went that way and Peter went on to do, you know, what he did with that CD. Mm -hmm. uh, would I love to work more with Peter? Yes, 100%. But I was... In agreement too. I mean, sticking with what we'd worked so hard for, we had an amazing thing. Yeah, and uh, saw that too. So I think he understood completely. You know that we we were going to stay with that. So that was our experience working with Peter. Um, I know that we also, after we were signed to Arista, we um, we were in contention to do the the soundtrack to uh, uh, what's that Spielberg movie with the flying saucers, Los Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah. Uh, between John Williams and us, I believe, if I remember correctly. Oh, and cool. representing us. Yeah, it was really cool. And which kind of tells you the style of music that we did would sort of fit what that film was. If John Williams mm -hmm. ended up doing the score for it, uh, John obviously won and they went that way, but it was just the fact that we were considered and in the running for it, I thought, oh, how, you know, what an honor that is. Absolutely. Uh, Arista, that was a trip. Um, we were playing the cellar door in Washington, DC, which was a kind of a premier club in Georgetown. We played there quite often. It was one of my favorite clubs to play. And um, they started sending out record execs to see us because the word was out. We were really quite this amazing band. Uh, and I remember Larry Fast came out. I uh, used to work with, um, he was a keyboard player, uh, oh. worked with Passport Records. Okay. Uh, a couple of people came out. Well, they sent out Stu Fine, which was the um, A&R guy from um, Arista, and just blew Stu away. He loved it and went back and told Arista, Clyde Davis, basically, about us. And the next thing we know, we're being um, flown out to uh, New York, and we uh, did an audition in SIR Studios, I think it was. You might okay. know that. that way, I don't. It's been there for years. It may not be there anymore. Uh, yeah, I heard, heard of them, but I don't know. I don't know if that. Um, but exactly. I remember the, um, we worked incredibly hard to get to this point, like any band would have, you know. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, we're in this rehearsal studio set up with our gear. <clears throat> There's about 15 chairs in front of us. And in comes Clive Davis with an entourage of about 10 people. And they sit down and I, there's like 20 feet in front of our faces. And um, this is the moment you've worked for, for how mm-hmm. long to mm-hmm. get to a major label with someone as big as Clive Davis coming to see you. Yeah. going to let you know whether it's going to happen or it ain't going to happen. So I remember we fire into the first tune, which I think the Starborn, first one on the CD, mm-hmm. which is kind of a masterful piece. And I had a little toy xylophone. Uh, that I would start the piece with, and I put a little a little mouth that was wood, and it would, it would go zing, you know, rake like that. And I can remember I was so nervous, my hand was shaking, actually just shaking, you know, before we started this. And we tore into this piece and played it entirety, got done with it, and they just sat there with no reaction whatsoever, which you're not used to, you know, because you're performing with applause. Mm-hmm. Which, which hits you even harder because you're like going, what the hell? So we fire into the next tune. I believe we played three tunes. And at the end of that third tune, everybody stood up with an ovation. And Clive pulled us into a side room and talked to us for half an hour, 35 minutes um, about music and working with Hall Notes and all kinds of stuff. And I don't think Clive totally got exactly what we were doing we were a little more progressive than what he normally dealt with from you know the Whitney mm-hmm. Houston's and whatever sure. uh but he knew it was something worthy uh signed us next thing we know um we're looking for producers and I think a tape accidentally landed on the desk of Ken Scott okay. and Ken went holy crap who is this mm-hmm. um perfect timing for him he came out and we did a, a show at the cellar door Mm-hmm. He watched his play and boom, want to do it, you know. Wow. So the next thing was flying out to A&M in Los Angeles. And uh, so with that studio, Ken Scott producing and Clive Davis behind it, it doesn't get much more incredible than that. Yeah, really. Did our thing and, you know, boom. That's really, uh, what a story too. I mean, what an experience. Oh, it was incredible. Incredible. So how many how many albums did you record on your yourself with Happy the Man for Arista? Uh, I did the one, the Happy the Man one. Mm-hmm. Um, after I left the band from there, I was getting ready to do the second album, uh, but we ran into some problems and, and, and I got out. Ron Riddle was a good friend of mine who was the drummer on the second album, Crafty Hands. Ron and I hung out a bit together, so I sort of turned Ron onto the band and one thing led to another and Ron took over that position and went in with him. Uh, we're still friends today. We talk a lot and stuff. He's a great drummer. I love Ron's drumming. And he actually <clears throat> suited that second album real well. Um, it was becoming more of kind of a more high energy kind of thing they were kind of getting into. And Ron dealt that really well. There's mm-hmm. pieces I had done. Well, in fact, I think I worked up in rehearsal all the pieces for the second album could have done it, but that transition took period there. Mm-hmm. It's funny to hear the old tapes versus how the CD turned out of how I structured it versus how Ron did. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's kind of cool. Um, he's yeah. probably better at certain sections. Maybe I would abandon me on the, you know, the percussive sections like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, that's kind of how that went. I'm on, there's three or four other ones uh, that have older material on it that we did way back before we got signed things like that, that I am on board with. I'd have to actually look back to see how many 
Well, they I, are. I have some of those. I just, uh, I don't have it handy where I can look at the label. Were, were you self, self-producing self or self-publishing, uh, yeah. yeah. if you will? Mm -hmm. Ken did yeah. the first two, uh, Ken Scott. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that, yeah, they did the, kind of went on their own and did one. And um, early on would have been, maybe Kit might've done it. You know, our keyboard guy was pretty good at that kind of a thing. Okay. Interesting. Wow. Um, so since then, you've done a lot. You've been doing a lot of gigs. You had a band, which, uh, please forgive me, I forget the name, the, the word dog is in it. It was, yeah, it's a band called Dog Talk. Um, yes, thank you. <laughs> it, was a, it was funny. It was a complete different kind of band than what Happy the Man was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I still utilized a, a large kit with lots of percussion, but it was more of a world beat kind of thing. Okay. I've always loved world beat music, uh, weather report onto everything you can imagine. Oh, yeah. So anything that has an ethnic quality to it, I love. Mm -hmm. So that band would have had talking drums to certos to, to all kinds of crazy instruments like that. Oh yeah. Uh, we were original band uh, primarily, but did a lot of covers our own way. That band um, that had like a um, 15 year run. Um, I mean, yeah, it was quite a while. I was reading about that. It was, and my printer's uh, broken, so I couldn't. I didn't bring any notes up with me, so I was. Oh, you're okay. I no, by I, memory. I'm a young man. <laughs> I mean, it was a very live band, very entertaining, incredible front guy. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a people's band. I mean, we made people extremely happy. It was a happy mm -hmm. band. Mm -hmm. I remember I started that band, and I remember that was kind of when Nirvana was out and stuff, and things were oh. kind of and negative and everybody was complaining and mitching and moaning i wanted mm -hmm. something happy and positive and you know to, to a good vibe thing so the world beat kind of came in and i wrote a lot of music that was like that and so we were very just up and you know let's have fun you know but but it creative at the same time um but yeah it was great i mean it's what i do for a living and have my entire life uh, ever since happy the man so when you do that as a musician, you find different ways to be able to plug in to make a living, as you mm -hmm. probably know, having been one yourself. Uh, if you're just a drummer, it can be tricky unless you're a Dennis Chambers or somebody who has been, in, you know, can stay in that upper level, uh, getting those phone calls. If not, if you're someone married with responsibilities and children, an incredible supportive wife, which I have, um, you find ways to be able to do what you love to do. Um, for me, that was playing as much as I could with whoever I could play with, whether it was sort of a cover band or an original thing or a harpist or anything that would come my way. I could handle whatever. But once it's interesting, I, am I getting off track here? I hope I'm not just not talking. At all. No, no. Um, I discovered as being a drummer, percussionist, hybrid, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you can play in as many bands as you want to and pick up as many side gigs and studio work and whatever, but you're still kind of a side man. You're still waiting for the phone call to come to you. Hey, are you open? Can you do this or whatever? So I started booking myself and booking bands, booking dog talk. I became the principal manager booker for that agent. Hence, it turned me on to all the venues and the people who ran those so I established this contact and not, not the word power, but to put you in a position where you could find yourself work because you had created all that. So I started 
booking, which means I could find work when I wanted to because I had the connections to, knew how to do it, knew how to do the left brain or right brain thing. I could go to the music, I could go to the business, I could do the contracts, the invoices, make mm-hmm. sure everyone's paid, taken care of. So that helped make a living. So having a booking company, which I have, being a musician playing, gluing the two together because I can book myself in situations that I'm booking, mm-hmm. it turned out to be a really great way to be able to make a living as a musician, you know? Yeah. You know, so we have a parallel right there because um, yeah. I did the same thing back in the I didn't start doing it until work started to change when the scene changed and there were less clubs <laughs> yeah. or, you know, the, the classic, I don't even know how it is now or how it'll be after we can start playing again, but yeah, you know, 75 bucks a person per gig. Well, that's what yeah. it was like 40 years ago. So yeah, we no. never got a raise. As a matter of fact, we're earning about half as much as we did relative to what things cost these days. But bottom right. line is I needed more, income so i started booking bands and i just happened to pretty much be a member of every band i was in booked. Yeah, that's <laughs> so i yeah. want to work i'm booking us we do it every wednesday okay good oh one monday a month okay good or, or i had a couple other bands i would book uh that i wasn't in but i had to i did yeah. make i had to make it happen otherwise i wouldn't be paying the electric bill and stuff there's hundreds of thousands of musicians that way mm-hmm. and a lot of the people i have dealt with over the years or whatever musicians and you, you know they're funny i mean most don't have a business head too well most don't want to have a business head they don't want to deal with that mm-hmm. and so you either sit and wait for the phone to ring or you have to go out and make it happen yeah and so i learned that you have to switch that left right and you know to to bring it in yeah uh, i find doing it i mean i enjoyed it and it keeps a nice control on what's happening and I can piece together lots of incredible musicians from this area with me involved or whatever and, and make different bands and situations and stuff up for what the client wants. And how cool yeah. of a thing to be able to do. I can take a, a harpist here in town that plays jazz harp, put that with an upright bass player, maybe bring in somebody on a you know, clarinet or oboe and add in a celloist with me on mm-hmm. percussion. All of a sudden you have this cool artistic neat unit that totally. how would you ever have got yourself in a band like that unless you put it together for the client and be paid for that you know i mean yeah exactly yeah, yeah that's i i love that and that was the same experience i had um being able to create different situations musically yeah exactly so i had variety so i was very lucky i yeah man i was very lucky now um, your budget fine that's the only part of it because you're the one that booked it you're the one getting you're the one making sure it all works you're responsible so there is that end of it why most musicians don't want to do that because that's not the easy part yeah yeah fortunately it worked out well almost all the time here because some great people to work with all responsible adults you know showing up on time playing for the gig um so i'm curious about a few things i i think actually um Sadly, because I have about 10 minutes before I have to go, we might have to do a part two. I think part two could be (laughs) venture into some other areas, but let's start with some of those other areas that I'm thinking of right now. Uh, Two questions. In any way or order you want to answer. Early on, okay, three questions. 
were drums your first instrument? If not, what was? Uh, who were your first musical influences? I have different influences. You know, I've had like Alan Holdsworth yep. influenced me more than any musician in the world. And he's a guitarist. But Buddy Rich and Billy Cobham and Tony Williams and Elvin Jones and Bill Bruford and they were drum influences. Let's start with that arena. Like, what was your first instrument? Who are your influences primarily? Drums are my first instrument. Okay. They're really, I mean, I play keyboards, but not, I've played them out, but I wouldn't, I'm not a keyboard player. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, someone's going to go, let's jam in the key of, uh, you know, B flat, I'm in trouble. You know I mean? It's more me riding on a keyboard and, you know, doing that. Mm-hmm. So drums are really my instrument. And drums are what I started with and played drums for a long time, still do, but then got into the percussion, added that yeah. into the redness, and that's how that stands. Mm-hmm. Influences, it's kind of funny. Um, I always loved Bobby Columbi from Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they were an incredible band, and he was a rock slash jazz player way back then mm-hmm. that was doing cool stuff that a lot of people weren't, let alone so was the band. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also loved Michael Giles from King Crimson. Uh, oh. He was on the early King Crimson. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Jamie Muir, who was the percussionist in Lark's Tongue and Aspect from King Crimson, was mm-hmm. a huge influence to me. Um, I also got into, have you ever heard of Harry Parch? No. Harry Parch is a really bizarre, if you, you might want to look it up. You might get a kick out of it. But he created his own instruments and created his own musical scale he took like from a whole octave and broke it into like 42 different tones and music fairly fairly dissonant and not the most pleasurable to listen to but the uniqueness and the creative and innovativeness of what he did especially in the instruments that he made Mm -hmm. out of bamboo and wood and he has one called cloud chamber bowls that are these pyrex half cut off bowls he hangs and uh, then as people who played the instruments because the instruments are rather big they can be 10 feet by you know four feet high or something had to move a lot and use special mallets and i thought how cool they're combining dance Mm -hmm. mime uh, musical ability all into one thing because they had to it's kind of what I ended up doing because I had to move and do all these percussions that you did hanging from my scaffolding and it just led to that. And luckily I at least had a fluidness to make that look halfway decent because I didn't study dance or try to do that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So those were heavy influences to me. Um, then those are the main ones. I mean, I always loved, I love all the drummers from Gino Benelli's band. Uh, oh, I love yeah. all the drummer Frank Zappa's band. Yeah. I love all the drummers from Weather Report. Yeah. Uh, so I always loved the, once again, innovative, creative, cutting edge, oddball, different world beat kind of players. Um, I admire what Ringo Starr did because it's so in the pocket and so nice. So I don't find too much fault with most people. The, the thing I don't care for, I got to be careful how I word it. <laughs> These days you can turn well you can turn YouTube on and look up a drummer and for a minute and a half he's doing the most unbelievable chop technical faster than crap licks that is jaw dropping 
And I think now what are you going to do? I mean, how many tunes are you going to get to do that in? I mean, that's impressive for a minute and a half, but you know, if you're playing, you know, help by the Beatles, I mean, you know, where, where do you take that? I mean, I've always come from more of a, in happy, the man, some of the tunes like knee bitten nymphs and stuff like that, that are really rocking parts and different time signatures. Uh, I was never going to be a Steve Gadd, like I said earlier, or drummers of that such, but yet I can play those kind of things, but I have to work it to get it. So when Happy the Man, some of those things we worked out in those weird time signatures, you would have to count out. We would take our time. And even though it was incredibly difficult, maybe what I was doing, because I would be using pizza pans and stuff, getting different sounds, which would make movements weird. I knew that the beat I heard in my head, I was going to get. I don't care if it took me a week or what. I did it. So yeah. I knew I could do anything I wanted. I just had to really, you know what I mean? You just have to work it you out. Sometimes feel like Steve Gatt could just, okay. You know, it's all, you know, it's just there. But if, if you just set your head to it and you've got the dexterity and you know what you want, it's a matter of just working it out, however you're going to do that. Um, so a lot of us yeah. just drive and really wanting it to, to be what you want it to be and not, not, you know, well, cut boost. You have to hear it first in your head. You right? do. And, and most of, uh, of course, a ton of influences that would cause me to hear different things that occasionally I would create my own little unique thing. Uh, but hearing it here, of course, sometimes practicing, I would actually stumble upon, I would discover something and then start yeah. to hear that and then develop it. So exactly. Evolving it. But I never really liked practicing. Uh, just, so uh, most of it would be up here and I would work it out in my head relative to whatever tune or whatever, and then physically try to work it out. Um, usually I could do all right with that because I'd thought about it so much. It's like the neural firing patterns for that lick exactly. were already in there. And then I had to physically manifest it. Um, yeah, that's really interesting too. That's, I love, you know, the band you mentioned, Gino Vanelli, man. That oh, yeah. guy. I, I um, love, he that he can make me cry. His music, his voice. I saw him one time in 2005, and I, I was in tears for at least crying. half of the concert because I couldn't believe how beautiful he sounded and the band sounded. It wasn't just the chops, it was the the feeling and the emotion behind it all. And his actually he's fun to watch too, you know, the way he kind oh, of yeah conducts things and oh he's a great vocalist oh my god oh my god and then zap is a whole nother thing which i it's funny of almost like polar opposites i was talking with greg bissonette last week who tours yeah. with ringo star and yeah. ringo star's all-star band i'd seen greg at a clinic here 20 something years ago and he was explaining to me on the come together song the well at the time, I didn't understand how difficult, actually, that is. Because while it might be simple, it's also creative. Ringo's in the pocket all the time. Yeah. And he tells me on the live gigs, I mean, Ringo is deep in the pocket. And uh, that, that simple doesn't mean easy. No. And I've been learning this more about life in general, but simple does not equate to being easy 
In fact, doing a lot of choppy stuff can actually be easier, except that does it fit the tune? So what is coming, I'm regressing. I went into uh, this, you know, decades ago thinking I needed to be Mr. Chop Guy and realizing even more so than ever now how simple pocket groove is so much more effective with space between notes instead of filling everything out. You know, I mean, I knew this a long time ago, but actually implementing that, you know, so you got Zappa on one side, which I'm starting to understand some of the stuff because I, I never felt like I could relate to it, but now it's like genius. But then there's the Beatles. That's genius. Yeah, it is. I mean, they're it's, both geniuses on, on these different spectrums. It's, it's amazing. It, I mean, chops are important because you'll hear things in your head that might be 16th notes that when you're playing over a beat, you want to go, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If you don't have the chops to get that, then you can't do that when you're hearing. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you've had that happen where you're, you're playing Absolutely. something you go, right here. I wish I could just do a really nice little, you know, but you, you know, it's not there. So chops give you the freedom to do that. But going back to what I said earlier, if I didn't have that, I would work to get the chop to do that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and then sure. I play that piece because I had the chop to do that. Mm -hmm. So I didn't work on drum kit like some of these probably guys do eight hours a day to where that is just right there at the fingertips. Mm -hmm. And obviously the more you play every day for a living or what you're doing, that's going to be there, you know, mm -hmm. but it all comes down to the style of each particular performer. Once a drummer percussionist has created his own style, boom. Mm -hmm. There you go. Because everybody to me starts out copying somebody else. You're listening to Ringo, you're listening we to your yeah. favorites are just like our influences early on. God, mm -hmm. I want to play like that. Can I, I gotta learn that beat? I gotta do that. And you do all that. And pretty soon you can do all that, but then you gotta figure out how you're gonna do that. You mm -hmm. might want to not go just like he sounds. Why would you do that unless you're copying that because you want to sound just like he does? you got to find how you would do it. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden people start noticing you because it's like, well, God, call Michael because he, God, he's not like anybody else. He's probably, this is, he's going to fit this perfect. You know, mm -hmm. he's really different and unique, you know, uh, to me, that's everything. Uh, I don't want to be like everybody else. I want to be able to do what everybody else does. If I'm called for a gig to play this song, but more than anything, I want to be who I am and how, and how I hear it and they hear how I hear it. And that's what they want and blah, 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 blah. You know, I mean, that's what makes a real musician to me. Um, you can point out. Yeah. You understood. See, here's one of the things I, I mean, as a, a, a compliment, you were ahead of your time. Okay. Because you figured that shit out decades ago about becoming your own voice. And I think it, it takes something really special to be able to do that, especially uh, at a young age, right? And you're coming out with the stuff and you're being Michael Beck. Yeah, you had your influences, but you found your voice and you played your voice because, you know, there's only one Michael Beck. But this, this topic comes up in every conversation. I am such a late boomer. I didn't get anything together in my life until 10 years ago when I turned 50. Like everything was a mess. You know, I did everything backwards, but, but, you know, I'm lucky to be where I'm at. And I kind of went glad I went through all the kind of ridiculous things yeah. that got me here. 
but this, this comes up in every conversation as you can only be you anyways. You can't be somebody else. You won't be Bill Bruford. You won't be no. Omar Hakim or Peter because you can't because they're them and you're not. And yeah. they can't, and nor Why can they be you. They can't you don't be want you. Two Bill yeah. Bruford, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, no, it's true. But the influences, that, that's where we learn from. And I, uh, I, I really appreciate so much more now when I eventually reemerge and do some kind of playing, probably more recording than live stuff. But it's going to be Carl, man, because yeah, I have to just be me. I, I give up trying to be anybody else. It takes too much energy to be somebody else. Yeah. You can't be anyways. <laughs> and early on, you talked about the emotion. And yeah. I mean, that's the other part of it is if you play technically, you're not that you're not using emotion, but it's more about the chops and all the cool, fancy, little incredible speed, of, you know, to play from your heart and your soul emotionally yeah. mm -hmm. to me is going to move people way better. That's what music to me is about. The chop thing only accents that and helps present that. If you're dealing strictly with chops with your 40 second flurry of incredibleness, um, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that only goes so far. You got to be able really to bring it down to a little bell ringing, clear up to the gongs banging, to a drum kit just wanking down, and everything in between. And that's what that's what moves people and flows and and brings it out. And you have to play it from your heart and feel it, and feel the feedback that you get from people when you do that. And Happy the Man, when we would play live, you would you would feel that and you would get that back. And when you're exchanging that kind of energy live when you're playing whether it was happy to man or anything i may do today or you or anybody else that's when music happens and that's when you're affecting people and it turns into what it's really supposed to be um yeah so all of it works together technical you got to have all of it to be the real deal you got to be able to you know but then well you you brought up a good analogy earlier too which i was thinking Oh, that's me where you're playing. Uh, and then there's like a thing you want to do those 16th. There's a, you know, once in a, once in a while I might try it and it would come out, but it'd be too loud. So I'd have to practice, practice, practice to be able to do it at a low volume. That actually takes more control than the loud. Usually, you know, can you, can you play it fast? Yeah. Can you play the same thing? Slow. Ooh, maybe not. Can you play it loud? Yeah. Slow or soft. Ooh. So it makes the, a difference. It that sure makes a good position and one that doesn't, that's going to put the time in to do that because he cares to do that. Once yeah. that to be heard and presented to the crowd, most guys will go, oh, that's too hard. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. But what time is it? Are we about done? You know, how much am I making? You know, how much are you paying? You know, it's that versus, oh my God, I want to, you know, that's got to be there. God, I hear that. You know, uh, that's what, that's what it's about to me. It's hard to well, find people. It's, it's hard. I mean, I know everyone's struggling to make a living as a musician. It's not the easiest gig to have. Mm -hmm. And they do want to know how much they're being paid and how much they have to rehearse. And, you know, um, when you put a band together, it's even more difficult these days because um, you're trusting that whoever's putting that band together is probably going to maybe make it or money's going to come in, but you got to rehearse to get to that point. And so I understand the, what am I being paid? And, you know, I mean, pick up work yeah. and, you know, so it's, it's tricky when you put a band together, there's a commitment that happens, you know, I mean, you, everybody's got to go, I'm in, we're going to go for this, you know, and uh, yeah, 
Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, not, not that anyone needs to know this, but maybe somebody else has experienced this. I stopped playing live a little over seven years ago, except for some private stuff a little bit, but even yeah. that's years ago. Part of the reason was because I knew that at the end, end of the night, just a club maybe or whatever, and somebody wanted an extra song because they enjoyed it so much. And I'd be like, oh, crap. Spend yeah. another eight minutes here i don't want to do eight more minutes <laughs> you know that's the time for me i had to get out because i'm doing a disservice to everybody i'd fake it i was professional i'd do it i'm not gonna yeah. verbally like voice my complaint but there are other people who wanted to do these gigs and they should be doing them because they have the excitement and the drive and the energy and that's where i just i drew the line and said this is it it's time for a break and so after all these years and now with the conversations, like especially talking with you and the enlightenment I get in how you think this is going to help me. Oh, cool. Which I think, no, I'm very sincere about this. In fact, I knew this before we talked because there's no way that I couldn't be inspired by you. Uh, even if we never spoke a word with each other, I just, I'm still <laughs> inspired because you come through in the music that's the real freaking deal and that's what i love to me that's so special and unique and now we get to talk you think okay when i get something together i'll be me but the concepts that i uh some of the things you shared conceptually and otherwise that's going to be a part of it so nice. I, appreci I appreciate that a lot michael i really genuinely do not just saying it because you're here i'm saying it because you've made a difference for a lot of people whether the musicians or not. And, and that's special. Well, that's huge. I mean, yeah. How nice is that? I mean, that, that's what it should be all about anyway. Um, giving back. And I mean, every musician should, should be able to move people with what they do and period. I mean, that's the bottom line. Now on the other side of that fence, <laughs> uh, Yes, I play lots of gigs like you were just talking about where I might be doing this. I mean, I might be prying brown eyed girl, you know, in a band, you know, <laughs> but, but it's my job. So yeah. when you're a full time musician, you're not playing with incredible musicians each time, an incredible concert. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You're playing some backup backyard party, you know, where. No one could give a flying crap, really, you know, mm -hmm. and you're knocking mm -hmm. down a three hour gig for X amount of dollars and you're clocking in and you're clocking out and you're making your money and you move to the next one to support your family and do what mm -hmm. you got to do. Yeah. But as a musician, I would much rather be doing that, doing what I do, playing the instrument that I love than working at, uh, you know, Kmart or wherever it's going to be in Absolutely. a job that I can't stand. Yeah. So so the benefit of being able to do what I do in any kind of situation, some way better than others, I'll take it any day, you know, cause it's, it's what I'm meant to do and what I love to do. So, you know, well, you know that, and that's really important. I, I'm very lucky that in the neural rehab business that I do, which kind of was an accident that started happening before I stopped playing that allows for a lot of creativity and improvisation, if you will, um, has to be sensible of course, for safety and, but still working with people to improve memory, cognition and movement. I love it. But, oh, yeah. but I think, you know, one of the difference, differences uh, is I didn't love the drums 
at that point when I stopped. I'm like, I'm done with this, man. I'm out because I love it, but I can't do what I want. And it just is like, okay. And that's yeah. where the disservice was. And fortunately, my business had, in fact, I stopped really loving it years before, but family, bills, responsibility. So what you said is I totally get it. Um, yeah, I, I, it, it's, it's all relevant. We have to do what's right and best. And like what you did, what, how you put that is beautiful. And Evan, my uh, Evan, Scott, we call him. Thanks. He says, thank you. Thank you both. Well, thank you, Scott. I, I need to call your office and I need to, I need to talk with you about my teeth. <laughs> so yeah. I see Scott. I he's on Facebook. I've seen him. I'm not sure if we're friends on Facebook or not, but I've seen him on there. So I yeah, know yeah. Yep. He, he's a really good drummer. He, he won't. Oh, okay, cool. Won't. That's probably I know his name from too, maybe. He's got actually, he's got this uh, posted a video a while ago. Once in a while, I'll post this. Uh, been to his house a few times, experiment on the Roland electronic kit that he has, which talk about sonic stuff. I enjoy some of the electronics. Um, I used to have some of them, I got rid of them, but that allowed, I had a hybrid setup for a while, a few years yeah. of just being really creative with different sounds. So you're emitting in and getting like 400 different things, you know, or it's really infinite yeah. with MIDI. So it, that, that was a fun time. I've been over to his house and played on that kit and what a blast. It's funny. I, I experiment with electronics, but it was never my thing. I, I think I'm really acoustic guy. I like the pureness of, of wood and metal yeah. and the soul that that carries, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, oh, totally. Electricity yep. and plugging in. Not that I didn't use some of those sounds sometimes, but I'm more organic. Um, mm -hmm. It just means more to me. Uh, I've always been that way. I get that. I'm mostly with you on that. Uh, just like experimenting with electronics has been fun, but I found that I couldn't bring it to a live situation and make it happen. Um, yeah, so, you that... know, I, I, I got a text while just before I was going to sign off and I've got, now I'm lucky I have a few more minutes, but do you have like five more minutes or so? I'm good. I'm good. Okay, good. Because one of the questions I wanted to ask you that I was thinking for another time, but let's ask it now is who are you listening to now? Is there anyone out there you're, you're checking out uh, or, or maybe not anyone new, but is there any one or any musicians or any entities musically that are, you, you're really deri deriving a lot from that you would be willing to share with us? Um. God, yeah, there's this new kid. I can't think of his name, which is a bummer because I. Um, if it comes to me, I'll say he's this younger guy that's um, won a lot of awards, uh, plays every instrument there is. I can't think of his name. Oh, I oh, say oh. might it be uh, the kid from England? Yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. I want to say, well, I'm thinking. Jamie McCollum, which I love Jamie McCollum too, but no, it's, uh, you know who I mean. I, I do. I do. It's, it's, it starts with a uh, J. I'm sure it's. Yeah, it does. He's, uh, he's as close to a genius as I would call it. That guy's incredible. You are uh, not kidding, man. I, he plays yeah. amazing. The way he thinks, the way he approaches it, everything about what he does is, is unbelievable. We need to think of his name so if anyone's listening, they can get turned on to him if they haven't already. Um, other than that, um, 
Not really. I mean, I listen to a lot of stuff. Um, Jacob Collier. Sorry, I'm interrupting. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you Buddy. Yes. Exactly. I learned about him through Peter Erskine. He said, you got to check this out. This kid yeah, can do Peter, everything. Like Peter, I see Peter talking about him. Oh, man. So I'm sorry. Um, yeah, Jacob Collier. Thank you so much. Love that kid. Okay, He's I'm amazing. sorry. Yeah. That'd be amazing. Um, but no, I, don't, I, I couldn't drop any other other names other than him at the moment, but uh, I'm I listen to anything once again that seems creative and innovative and someone really trying. I really like uh, beautiful music and lots of really pretty melodies and stuff like that. I'm not a real hard rock guy or anything of that such. Um, I like more I'm happy the man, real masterful, you know, different things like that. And like I said earlier, I love world beats. So anybody involved in that, you know, I love what they do. But no, I don't have any great answer for you on that one. Other than oh no, it's it's you know it is whatever it is because a lot of times uh, I may have discovered some things new lately that I really like. Like, um, uh, well, I met recently, a year and a half ago, Dennis Chambers came through with as a member of Frank Gambale's band, and um, Sean Whalen, who's become a friend, is on keyboards on the gig. And I knew Mike Pope, the bass player anyway, so I was hanging out with Mike and talking. And But I, uh, uh, both Mike and uh, Sean and Dennis actually been on this as a guest. Yeah. But, but um, Sean just released a new recording the other day, which just is like, and he has a, a drummer on there. His name is Nate Wood. You might really enjoy this because although it's, let's say, fusion-y, if you will, uh, Nate's using some stuff that I don't know what it is, but it ain't drum set and it ain't a cymbal. <laughs> so the different things, you know, I know there's like tambourine here and there, and there's like one of those like tiny little high pitched trash can top type of things. Or and and I just love the way Nate is smoking on this thing, but also playing simply in a lot of areas too. And um, the other thing I really enjoy about Sean's sound well is his sound or sounds because he's doing a lot of the analog replication through oh. an Nord or an oberheim or whatever which i mean that stuff to me is it's kind of like the difference between digital and final right it's just it's just doing your thing it's just being original and trying to come up with new stuff i it's funny i i just started a youtube channel yeah good channel I, by the way folks you got to check out his channel I've never done anything like that before. You're breaking before stuff down and teaching us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, th I thought what I, I thought, well, all right, it's COVID. I'm not, you know, I guess maybe what I'll do is I'll start a YouTube channel with the help of my son <laughs> since he's younger, knows how to do all that. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought I would take each tune off the happy, the man album that I was on and some others, if it goes that far and break them down and just mm -hmm. for the fun of it. And I thought it might be a nice give back for anybody who might want to know what, I was doing then, you know, and so I've taken two tunes now and I've just um, talked into the camera and tried to demonstrate and talk about what I played and why I did it and show the instruments that I used, the ones I still have left. And it's really been fun um, to dig back in and listen to those and figure out what, you know, what I was doing. And uh, so I'm going to keep trying to do that. I've had, you know, quite a few people that's checked it out and stuff, which is kind of cool, but uh, yeah. We were talking into a camera, trying to do that, you know. Uh, let you alone those. A, yeah, you're doing a really good job on those. I've watched all of them. Oh, you see them? Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. yeah, thank you. I mean, it's it's an awkward thing, but 
Well, it's part of my research so I could ask you questions that were relevant because I needed, oh. I wanted to make sure I knew what I could about <laughs> you to at least be able to have a conversation, uh, no, which, you know, I, I appreciate this so much. It's been, it's been a blast. Um, something else I was going to say, well, the, what, what is the name of the YouTube channel? People Google on YouTube, your name. I think it just shows up, right? The happy, the man, Michael Beck. Um, uh-huh. I think it shows up then. Yeah. Yeah. It will. Uh, yeah. And that's all I'm doing on there. I'm just breaking those tunes down the best I can, um, in the shortest amount of time possible. You know, I'm getting ready to do, um, one of the bigger pieces. I think I'm going to do Mr. Mears reflection, which is kind of more detailed. Oh, cool. Uh, but I have to kind of study up because it's tricky to pull out some of those old parts again. Like I said, you know what I mean? Can I yeah. do that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you'll do it. That's, well, yeah, I love well, how you go through and you break things down and explain things and demonstrate. It's really great. Cool. Very nice. Um, well, I probably should go in a minute because uh, I, I have to. Yeah, now I do. actually have to. <laughs> yeah, I've got people, uh, clients, patients to see today and uh, a lot of the rehab stuff. But I uh, want to thank you very, very much, man. I appreciate your time. You've spent a lot of time with us today and i really appreciate this very much michael oh carl for sure man i'm i'm honored to have you interview me i mean that doesn't happen that often so it's so nice to uh somebody who cares and got turned on to happy the man as you did and i really enjoyed it wanting to know more about it so me being part of that so nah, thank you i i think you know and i mean this sincerely i think we should do a part two we can kind of strategize maybe a little about more what we'd like to talk about beforehand because we don't really need to go into detail about what we already did there can be a little cross cross or whatever but you know there's so much going on with you your brain your spirit and what you bring to people through how you play and music that that in itself is uh uh your, your ability to do that so effectively is in my opinion, pretty rare and unique to have that kind of effect on people. Scott says, go happy the man. Yeah, go, go, go. Yeah. Well, thank <laughs> we you. Should do, we should do a part two down the road. I think it would be really cool. A few weeks, a couple months, part two. Fine with me, man. I, I'm, this, this is fun. It's fun. It's fun artistically talking and opening up these thoughts and talking about them and the process mm-hmm. and all that. I really like that. Um, and, well, I have uh, a lot more questions and I, you know, okay. Scott says yes. Part two. Okay. But do it in seven thirteen time. <laughs> hey, is Steve, uh, Durham, Steve Durham still on there? I I believe so. Is he, uh, if he is, yeah. Hey, Scott has been so long, man. Steve, Steve was with us way back in happy. The man he used to open up oh, for us. Oh, wow. Used to cool. With us. He has a beautiful voice and uh, did his material back then. And we were, we were all friends and uh, I miss him. I'd love to be able to run into him sometime. I think he's in New York and uh, I see him on Facebook, but early on when I, I thought you said Steve was maybe on there, it was like, Hey Steve, what, how cool. Yeah. He's so, here. And, and yeah, I see it. No, that's so cool. <laughs> Hi that's Steve. That's cool. That's great. <laughs> nah, old friend from way back. Yeah. It's great. Do you Too know, do you know Mike Cruz? Mike Cruz? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mike Cruz uh, runs a library. Here. Yeah, and Mike, I've worked with Mike for many years, uh, taking down to him. And uh, 
Well, yeah, Mike. he he even said here, Michael is the only musician to play at our Indiana Libraries concert series every year for the last 23 years. His bands are always great entertainers and fun. Boom. Cool. Yeah, nice. Call me, I Mike. I, yeah. <laughs> well, I may be in India, uh, India, India, India uh, for the big car show. Big, okay. So here's top secret. That's going around to the whole world, right? So it's really not a top secret. Won't I, might be now. Be able, I might be able to work at the car show. We're trying to work this out. And that would be cool because, you know, I drive manual shift and all that. All you got to do is be able to do a stick shift and you can maybe. Okay, Scott, if you see this, Scott Hoke, uh, I'm just reminding you. <laughs> That's fine. available. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to do that. When's well, that May? May. Oh, I'll tell you right now, it's uh, for anyone who's into the, if you're in the indie area, and if you're not, um, it'll be on TV, because they always pre-record and then air a day or two later. I just looked it up last night. The indie show is going to be May, that's Las Vegas, okay, indie is May 14th through May 22nd. Uh, I don't know when the recording dates are, but I'm guessing they're probably going to do recording probably four or five of those dates or maybe all of them i don't know yeah my email and number just hit me uh i, I will we'll we'll hang <laughs> out man that'd be great i'd love that all right well i want to thank uh giovanni it wouldn't happen without you giovanni thank no, you very much my friend i really appreciate me, it yeah same to giovanni too because i told him that already on a message that he's the one that made this happen so totally and I want to thank uh, Steve, Mike, Scott, my friend Scott Gross, and anyone else who's watching because I can't scroll up that far and see, but there are quite a few on Facebook. And especially Michael Beck. Thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure, man. I had a blast. Part two will happen, folks. You call me on it. I'm there. You got it. All right, my okay. friend. We'll be in touch soon. I'll, I'll send you the YouTube link when this is up later tonight. It, okay, it'll be on Facebook for people, but... We'll get it on YouTube on the player's uh, webcast channel. Hey, who's your next drummer coming up? My next drummer coming up? You mean? Uh, Interview? Who, um, Bill Burford? I'm working on it, but. Yeah, work uh, on that. I'm trying. He, okay. Uh, it's um, uh, Dom Famolaro, Wednesday morning. Oh. I love Dom. He's the global yeah, cool. ambassador to drumming. And then I have a jazz great. Wednesday afternoon, and then I'm taking a break for about a week. So just I'm back to work full schedule. And uh, I, I was able to do these interviews because I was able to sit and focus on music or talk with neurologists about that stuff. Those are the only two things I could really do and crank out a lot of in my post-COVID re recovery period because I really had a lot of problems for about three months. And now yeah. I'm almost 100% other than no sense of smell at all and some... Okay. memory memory challenges but it's every day is usually a little better yeah carl allen will be on on wednesday afternoon okay cool um, after, after that uh, i don't have anybody right now but probably next week i'll have somebody but uh yeah don famolaro if you're not familiar with him you gotta oh, check him out man he's a beautiful person soul spirit that's wednesday at 9 a.m eastern yeah all right yo thanks again my friend all hey, right man. We'll be in See touch girl. soon. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Giovanni. Bye-bye.